Amen. <laughs> we'll read from 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, beginning at the 23rd verse. And these are the instructions of the Apostle Paul received from the Lord concerning observing the Lord's Supper. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new company in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Father, we um, thank you for this day. We thank you for partaking of your supper, partaking of what is representative of your body and your blood, with your body on the tree, dying for our sins. You shed your blood that we may be forgiven of our sins. Lord, we thank you for the word of Christ, and that is what we remember as we partake the communion table. We remember the work of Christ. We remember his sacrifice. We remember him dying in our place for our sins. We remember Christ taking on the condemnation of sin. So Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his work. We thank you for his word which he has given us that we ought to live by. Father, my simple prayer this morning for us as a church is that we live by your word. We live by the means of your word. Christ tells us that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Lord, help us to be obedient to your commands, to live according to what you have commanded, and Lord, give us the power, give us the strength, give us the grace to live by your word, to obey you. This world is increasingly hostile towards biblical Christianity. Lord, may we as believers stand as salt and light in this world. May we as a church stand as salt and light in the midst of this wicked and perverse world. Lord, also help us to love each other as believers, to love the faithful, to love the saints, to, to care for the saints, to pray for the saints, to encourage the saints everywhere. When we are pilgrims in this world, we're sojourners, we are just traveling through. This earth is not our home, this is not our final destination. Lord, our residence is in heaven and Paul reminds us our citizenship is in heaven. Help us to live as such. We are to live in this world, but not to be of the world. We're not to partake of the world's philosophies, the world's ideologies, the world's way of doing things, but rather, Lord, we are to glorify you forever and ever in what we do and what we say and how we even think. But also this morning, I continue to pray for our nation, that revival may break out, revival led by the Holy Spirit, Lord, that men may be brought to a saving faith in you, Lord. That is the only way things will change, is the parts of change. It won't be changed through any type of legislation or electing certain people into office, Lord. It will only be changed when hearts are changed, when hearts are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to be bold witnesses on our jobs and that with our family members, in our homes, in the public square, to be witnesses of the gospel, to be witnesses of the saving grace of Jesus Christ to this fallen and sinful world. Those who are out in this world without hope, may we show them the hope that is only found in Jesus Christ and that there is no other, there's no other God but you. There's no God but our God. There's no Savior but our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no name under heaven given up to men whereby we must be saved except the name of Jesus. And that is the hope that this world needs, and that is the hope that we ought to share. 
with all of our political leaders, from the White House all the way down to our local officials. Lord, we continue to pray for our school teachers, administrators that are teaching our children, counselors, uh, all of them, Lord, that are educating our children, Lord, that you be with them at, uh, during the school years, just getting started, but you know, a lot of things happen in the schools already, Lord. We pray that you be with our teachers, our educators that are working with our children. Give them grace, give them strength, give them wisdom to teach our students well. And the administrators, the wisdom to lead, and counselors knowing the right words to say in dealing with their students and also with their colleagues. We pray for everyone in here who uh, goes to work every day, and even those who don't, but those who go to work every day that you help us to navigate our workplaces, to deal with those who don't believe in you, to deal with the hostility that is against Christians, and also to just live faithfully and biblically in this world. Because sometimes it can be hard, temptation to abandon the faith or to hide our faith can, can be so easy. Help us to be bold and to be strong and to be courageous Christians in the workplace. Those of us who don't work, who are retired, we are in the public square, dealing with family members, dealing with friends, or taking care of people. Help us to be a bold Christian witness also, even in our retirement, even when we're retired, that we are bold Christian witnesses. Lord, help us all to do everything to your glory, to strive to please you in everything that we do and say, no matter where we are. Lord, I pray for the preaching of your word this morning from the pulpits around this area, from like-minded, godly men, that you may fill them with your spirit to teach well. And Lord, fill them with your spirit to teach this text as we continue to look at the conduct of the new man, the new Christian, putting off the old and putting on the new and how that looks in the context of the church. And Lord, send your spirit to illuminate the text this morning to all of us that we may know your truth and not just know it, Lord, but apply your truth to our hearts by means of the spirit so that we may know how to live in this fallen world. Lord, bless our time in your word this morning. May we be refreshed. May we be renewed. May you lift us up, Lord, by your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. There's no mystery where you are this morning. We're in Ephesians. Continuing through the fourth chapter. Last week we talked about putting off the old and putting on the new. This morning we're going to talk about applying that by treating one another as members of the same body. That is how the new man looks, the new man in Christ, the new woman in Christ. And what Paul, we're going to see here in this passage this morning, is he's going to lay out the conduct of the new man. And this conduct is in the context of the local church, the local body of believers. That is what we see being uh, enumerated or numbered uh, this morning in this text. So we're here in the fourth chapter. We're going to look at verses 25 through 32 this morning. I want to go back a couple of verses to get the full context of this passage so we can see how it looks. So look back at verse, um, let's start back at verse 20. I think that provides us a good context. This is what we were talking about last week. Excuse me. And we'll see what Paul means when he says, therefore, in verse 25. So verse 20 says, because at Beginning at verse 17, talking about not walking as the Gentiles walk. We talked about that last week. You know, in particular to their minds, being darkened and understanding. You know, they become like God. You know, because their heart is apart, they become callous. They've been given over to all types of uh, sinful desires. Greedy, to practice every type of impurity. That is how the world is characterized. That is what characterizes those who are outside of Christ. They love sin. They enjoy sin. Sin doesn't bother them because they, they just increase more and more in sin. So then he says in verse 20, 
But this is not the way you learn Christ. We did not learn to live that way in Christ. Assuming or if you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Christ Jesus. And what are we to do? Verse 22. Put on the, put off rather, your old self. The old self is the self in verses 17 to 17, being darkening, understanding, and all those things. That's that's your old self when you were a pagan, when you were non-Christian. But it says, put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in spirit of your mind that comes through regeneration when you are saved, when God saves you, when you are converted, when you are born again, you have a new nature, you have new desires, you have a new will, and your will is instead of pleasing the desires of the flesh, when you're born again, your new will, your new desire is to please God, to do what is pleasing to Him, to do what glorifies Him and brings glory to your name. That's the nature of the new man. So Paul says, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the what? The new man. Created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, so Paul therefore means having said that, well, this is what that means. So when he says, therefore, this is where we are this morning. Verse 25 to 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, that's part of what? The old man. That each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And give no opportunity or give no place to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt communication or talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up or edifying. As fits the occasion, that it may give grace or minister grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is like the linchpin verse of this section. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender heart, forgive one another, as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. So you see, therefore, having put on the new man, this is the conduct of the new man. This is the conduct of the new Christian. So the question is, how are Christians supposed to carry themselves in this world and among each other? Paul asks these questions in this text. This is not an exhaustive list of, of uh, Christian behaviors, so to speak. But these should be indicative of us as believers. Again, we're not going to do it perfectly, but we should be striving to live this way. Every day. Remember, Christians don't get comfortable with sin. We fight against sin. We struggle against sin. We don't live in sin. We don't get comfortable with sin. We hate sin. We loathe our sin. We want to please who? God. Because he is our God. He's our Father. He, he saved us through his son, Jesus Christ. So we want to live to please him. We want to do what is pleasing to say. Now God is already pleased with us because we're in Christ. We have the righteousness of Christ on us. So God is already pleased with the believer because of our salvation in Jesus Christ. But we can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. By being disobedient. Okay? We can grieve our God by sinning against Him. That doesn't mean that God hates us in that moment or that He doesn't like us like some little petulant child. No, God doesn't God never removes His love from His believers. He never does that. God will never love you more than He loves you right now. And He will never, never love you less than He loves you right now, believe God's love for us does not wane. It doesn't ebb and flow based on how we act. <laughs> okay? That God is not like some little, like I said, not like some little passionate movie child. He doesn't have mood swings. God's love for us will never be greater than it is right now. That's the great assurance that we have as believers. God's love toward us never changed. Why? Because we are in His Son, Jesus Christ. We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. When God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see us in our sins. So we know that God is pleased with us, but 
because he's pleased with us, that doesn't give us a right to live any kind of way. Okay, as Paul said in Romans 6 and 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. <laughs> we were slaves to sin, as he continues to say in Romans 6, but now we're slaves to righteousness. Instead of yielding our members, our bodies, to do evil, we yield the members of our body to do what? To do good. Why? Because we we're in Christ now. So when we're looking at this list, so to speak, not necessarily a list, but, but, but these conducts that, that Paul is impressing on us as believers, this is how it looks to put on the new man and how the new man should look. And so this is how we're going to look at this this morning. He gives prohibitions. He gives the, the, the negative commands, as we talked about last week. There's things that you should do as believers, but there are things you ought not do. So you have the positive and negative commands, and these are a list of negative commands. So now with that behind us, let's look at this. Verse 25, he says, Therefore, again, having uh, been having put on the new self, therefore ties back to those verses that we read earlier, verses 20 through 23. Having put away falsehood. So the first prohibition, he says, is falsehood. Put away lying. The new man does what? Tells the truth. And we're not, excuse, we're not talking about just truth. We're talking about the truth. God's truth. What has God said? What has God revealed as truth? That is what we are to say. We're not to lie to people. We're not to deceive people or lead people into deceiving themselves. Why? Because we're members one of another. And one theologian said it. And man, when I read it, I was like, you know what? That is so convicting. One theologian said that We, some people lie up to a thousand pounds a day. That's not lies, man. Not everybody. <coughs> when somebody asks you how are you feeling, what 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 do I always say? What do I always say? Good, right? Is that always true? No. I don't feel good right now. I'm tired. I had to get up this morning. You know, I told you I got in late yesterday. Out from Huntsville. And, you know, we couldn't go to the stores. Everything was closed. So we had to get up earlier than normal this morning and go to Pick and Save and go to uh, Publix and buy stuff. And I was at home cooking three different meals at one time. You know, just, just making it happen. I was tired. That's why I was late this morning. Somebody asked me, how you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling great. I'm feeling fine. Best day. I'm just, ah. You see how easy we lie? <laughs> Amen. I can go in the back of you can't say me and say ouch. But we're not to do that. We we lie easily. We say we feel good when we're not. We go on Facebook and lie. You look at some of these Facebook feeds, Instagram feeds, like, man, they, they, they're always at the beach. They're always having a good moment. They're always at, on the lake. Uh, they're always in that boat. Man. You know, they always, that family is just so perfect. And, so happy. Man, they don't have any wrinkles on their face. They have no spots. They look 20 years younger. What kind of filter they use? You know, we we lie. Amen. Oh ouch. We lie without even thinking about it, without even knowing. And it doesn't mean we're we're just doing it to deceive anyone. But the point is that we <coughs> we say we're feeling good when we're not, we're lying. That's what it is. But what does Paul tell us the kind of the new man is? We're to do what? Put away lying. The new man tells the truth. We tell the truth to each other as believers. If we're struggling as believers, we should do what? Hey, I need prayer. I'm struggling right now. My child is struggling right now. My marriage is struggling right now. As believers, and we don't do this. We live in such an individualistic culture here in America. 
Everybody just kind of toughs it out, just grinds it out. But the Christian community, we should be more transparent with each other than anyone outside of our house. When we're struggling, when we're hurting, I need prayer. Why does Paul give this reason? No longer putting off falsehood. He says, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are what? Members one of or another. So the motive for being truthful is because we're members one of another. Remember, we talk about how do we treat one another's members of the same body? We, we don't lie to each other. We be honest. Just imagine a husband and a wife are honest with each other. What do you have to say marriage? Or parents and children are honest uh, with each other. Your co-workers are not honest with you. It does what? It breaks down the relationship. So in the church, that should not be the case. We don't lie. We, we tell the truth. We share God's truth with each other. The body can only function properly if it tells itself the truth. Think about your hand. If your hand touches something hot, but your hand tells your brain that the thing is cool, your hand will be severely burned. Right? Like I touched that cast out skillet by mistake with my bare hand, and that, 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 that hand sent the signal to my brain that there was some pain. And I said, I recall. But what if that didn't happen? I could burn my hand. That's how the body works, right? That's why telling the truth is so important because we are members one of another. We're going to do that because hurt in the body of Christ. We're going to do that. We tell the truth. We share the gospel truth with each other. If, if we have a Christian who's struggling with something, a sin or whatever, we tell them the gospel truth. You put that sin aside. Imagine, I, I hope that this will happen. I think it would. We know someone in our church body who is living in, uh, who's a professed believer, because you don't be a member of the church, you're a believer, and they're living in some type of unrepentant sin. We should love them enough to go to them and say, My brother, sister, I love you, but you're living in sin right now, and the Lord is not pleased. We should be able to tell them that in love. Because you love them, I tell them that. You have a couple in the church that's uh, living in sin, and they claim to be believers, but they're living with each other and not married. That's a sin against God. You tell them the truth and say, hey, you all need to get married, or you need to not live together. Because you're violating God's word. I commit a sin of fornication. That's speaking the truth, right? And that's helping them. He says, not lying, put away lying with your neighbor. Neighbor is the person next to you, the person you're in a relationship with. We do that, and we're showing them that we love them. And we do it because we're what? Members want to help another. We don't need that kind of unrepentance in the church. That's what Paul wrote first uh, Corinthians, the fifth chapter, about. They were boasting because a man was sleeping with his his, his, his uh, father's wife, his stepmother. And Paul said, you're boasting about this. That man needs to be put out of church and given to say that he may see his sin and come back and be restored. That was the purpose of not just kicking him out of church, but show him his sin in hopes that he would repent because this man, Paul said, you're bragging about this. This should not be in the church. He said, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, that this will corrupt the whole church because you're letting this sin go on? And not saying anything, approving of it, bragging about it, boasting about it, like there's nothing wrong with it. That's, that's what they were doing. So, when you're not truthful as believers with each other, it hurts the church. It hurts the fabric of the church. Paul's saying we are members of one another, but that's why we do that. Then he continues with the next one. Be angry. 
How many have temper tantrum? You don't have to raise your hand. How many have problems with anger? Is anger a sin? No. I, 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 remember, I remember this video. I listened to a Charles Stanley sermon on this very verse about 15 years ago. And I remember him saying that. Anger itself is not a sin. He said because anger is an emotion that God gives us, that God shares with us. One of those communicable attributes. Because God gets angry. God gets angry at sin. Getting angry itself is not a sin. What could be a sin is when you sin, use your anger as an excuse to do what? Sin. Or you're angry about things that are not worth getting angry about. The new man may get angry, but he does not sin. The new man knows how to let go of his wrath. The new man knows not to use his anger as an excuse to sin. And this, uh, in your anger do not sin, is a quote from uh, Psalm 4 and 4, where it says, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. That's almost like saying count to a hundred. <laughs> backwards. And in that song, David was being attacked by his enemies on the family. He knew that these attacks were unfair, that they were coming from uh, people who were against him, but they were also against God. But he says himself in that song, be angry and do not sin. Isn't that something? Although his enemies were coming against him. He said, be angry and do not sin. So Paul encourages others not to let our anger degenerate or get worse into sin. You could be righteously angry about something. You have righteous indignation. It means you have a righteous anger. Your anger over unrighteousness. When I see videos of uh, people acting a fool in public and looting stores and, and, and stealing you know, these malls breaking into stores and stealing and stuff. That stuff makes me angry. And they have no regard for anyone. You see videos of crime in the streets and, and you, you know, abortion angers me because you're killing babies. You're killing the most innocent among us. That, those are righteous things to be angry about. But do I take an anger go out there and, you know, Start calling those people names and, and threatening their lives and stuff like that. No. We can't be angry. Christ himself was angry. Christ exhibited anger when he went into the temple and did what? Turned over those money changing tables. No one some of the flimsy tables like what we got out there. <laughs> those tables in the tabernacle were heavy. But he's God, so you know he but Jesus, in anger, turned over those minor changes. Why? Right? Because he said, you all have turned this into a house of thieves. He said that this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all people, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. He was righteously angry. David said himself, zeal for God's house has consumed. He had a righteous anger for proper worship in God's house. It's okay to be angry. He says, do not be angry. Be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. That's not a literal sense like before you go to bed. That's that's not, you know, a lot of people have, have taken that to mean that, but that's not what it means. In other words, it doesn't, it means don't let it degenerate into sin. It's not like a strict time limit. But it means that it should not fester for long. So it says, don't let the sun go down with your anger. That means don't let it fester for so long. Don't let it fester for too long. Because do you know that the root of murder is anger? That the root of bitterness is anger? That the root of hatred is anger? That the root of having a malicious heart is anger? All that is at the root. Anger is at the roots of all those things. So you don't let your anger do what? Fester. 
Because next thing you know, 30 years from now, you'll still be talking about the same thing. Amen. You sit them down bitter, holding grudges. I guess somebody's dead. Pushing up daisies. Someone that you ain't seen in 50, 30 years, 20 years, and you still mad at them when their name come up. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, do not let a bitter root spring up in you. Be angry, but do not what? Sin. You sin here about holding grudges. Retaliating, having murderous thoughts about someone, wishing harm on someone, which Jesus says in Matthew 5 is, is, is the same as murder. Speaking evil against people, speaking uh, ill will against people, that is murder. But we can be angry, but we do not sin. Because the devil's work is to accuse and to divide the family of God. And his role is to sow discord among the church. When we harbor anger in our bosom, in our heart, guess what we're doing? We're doing the devil's work for him. We're doing the devil's work for him when we harbor anger in our hearts. When we, when we, when we just nurse it. Because that's what the devil does not uh, Desires to do. But Paul is saying we're not to do that with each other. We're to be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on our anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Because that's what that does. When you sin in your anger, who are you giving opportunity to? Who are you giving place to? The devil. You're letting the devil use you. That's not. The conduct of the new man who has been renewed in Christ. We're not instruments of, the, of, of Satan. We're instruments of Christ. We're slaves to Christ, not slaves to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Lord, help us forgive us if we have allowed ourselves to harbor anger against anyone because we are doing the devil's work. So, this is the attitude of the new man. And then he says in verse 28, he continues to drive that nail in. Let the thief, or let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him do what? Work. Labor. Let him labor. He who has been sent must no longer steal, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. And Paul was probably assuming that some of these new Ephesian converts uh, had been stealing. Why else would he say it? They're probably, you know, in their past unconverted lives, they were thieves. And you know now, as, as new believers, this this behavior has not been fully dealt with. Just like the anger hasn't been fully dealt with, perhaps uh, being a thief uh, did not. But what is the alternative to stealing? Working. New man does not steal, but he does what? Work with his hands. He does not to provide for his own needs, but also to provide for the needs of others. You have people right now mooching off the government. They can work. But they, don't. but they don't work. They want to get a little $700 my disability check. Yep. And they can work. If you're not totally disabled, I know disability laws are out of my insurance exam. Unless you're totally disabled, you can work at least 30 hours a week. You can make a certain amount of income, but you can still do something. Do you know that this area of Alabama, Northeast Alabama, has one of the highest disability rates in the state of Alabama? That means the highest number of people on disability that can actually work. People don't want to work. 
they're, they're out of steel from the taxpayers. That's 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 theft. You know, we think about stealing like in the physical sense, like going in the store and, you know, doing a buy and a discount or whatever. There are many, there are myriad ways to steal. There are multiple ways to steal. As, as opposed to working with your hands. God made us to work. Adam and Eve worked. They tilled the garden. That was their job. They didn't just walk around naked doing nothing. No, they tended to the garden. God gave them instructions. And they told them what he told them what tree they could eat from and which one tree they could not eat from. They tended the garden. That's what they did in paradise. They worked. They made the earth produce. They made it productive. That is what we're called to do as man. We're called to work. And men in particular are called to protect and provide. Provide by doing what? Working. Nowhere respecting woman wants a man who doesn't want to work. She ain't been work for a little bit. Now what he got a job. I'm tired of working around here. Why? Because she knows instinctively by God that he's supposed to be out working, he's supposed to be out providing. Stealing is in a lot of forms. You still on your job. Amen. <laughs> I don't know how some of y'all do the clock in, clock out thing. Some people steal time on their job. But claims you have done the work that they <laughs> never did. <laughs> man, yeah, man, ain't nothing on that job, man. <laughs> they think it's good, but it's stealing. You're defrauding someone. You're committing fraud. You're sitting around, all your co think about how they know all your co workers out here slaving, sweating. <clears throat> And you skating by, we call it skating in the name. You just skate. You skate. You just trying to get by easy. And you brag about it. Man, I ain't got nothing on that job, man. That's stealing. That's stealing time. That's stealing from your employer. That is not honorable at all. And for the believers, definitely not. And we're not to steal from each other. We're not to deceive and defraud the believers. That's what a lot of these false preachers are doing. They're stealing from God's people, lying to them, selling them lies to get money from them for greedy gain to uh, puff themselves up. That's what a lot of them are doing. They're stealing from their churches. They're fleecing the flock of God for their own benefit. But what does Paul say? Let him who stole steal no more, but what? Work with his hands. Let him labor. Labor literally means in the Greek to exert himself to the point of exhaustion. I mean, you got to go out there and work 80 hours a week. That's not what that means, but it's just, it's just a sense of working, putting in work. This is the kind of working hard that God commands those who would uh, who still have. This is kind of hard he wants them to have instead. We should work so that we can give, to be generous. And then not only stealing, but he next. Just remember, characters of the new man in the body of Christ. Let no corrupt communication or words, no unwholesome talk, proceed out of your mouth. But only that what what is what necessary for what edification. That it may benefit those who listen in part grace. Unwholesome talk. We may call this foul language or even blasphemy. But maybe that's obvious. It may be gossip. It may be always criticizing others. It always having a critical spirit. I don't mean like negative vibes. I'm not talking about that. But always just being critical. Always just being negative. How quickly can a local church be divided when someone has unwholesome talk? And it can create a nasty undercurrent in the church. 
when that takes place. We should not have corrupt communication. Excuse me. The new man knows how to watch his tongue. James himself says the tongue is a world of iniquity. The tongue can set the world on fire. James says we put bits and bridles in the horse's mouth to control it, but no one can control the tongue. Turn to the book of James. I think that's James, the uh, first or second chapter. This is James, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. James comes after uh, Hebrews. James, the third chapter. Talk about taming the tongue. And this is so true. So, when we're talking about unwholesome words. Corrupt communication. We as believers ought to watch our tongue. We ought to be careful what we say to each other and about each other. So James 3. He says, Now many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So those of us who are pastors, teachers of God's word, will be judged even more harshly. For well, we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, is a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts what? Great things. Think about how small our tongue is in comparison to our whole body. How great a forest, this is the ESV translation, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a what? Fire. A world of iniquity or unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless. This is something. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring bring forth both the same opening, fresh and salt water, bitter and sweet? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So James is saying, from our tongue come good and evil things, but that ought not be. Bitter and sweet don't come from the same fountain. So, thinking about how the tongue is, thinking about what Paul tells us about unwholesome talk, we have to pray since we're new people in Christ and ask God, Lord, help me with my tongue. If you know you got a foul mouth, That is not characteristic of the new man. One may slip here and there. Here and there. It shouldn't. Because it means it's on your heart. That goes back to the being angry and not what? Sin. Sin. You're cursing like a sailor. You need to check your heart. That's not indicative of a believer. No corrupt communication to come out of our mouth. But only that which is for what? Edifying. Building up. We have to build up each other, not tear each other down with words. 
Only what is necessary for edification. Foul language doesn't edify anything. It doesn't make any situation better. Oh, people say, oh, I, I, I do that to express myself, to, to get my point across. That's a lie. That's a cop-out. I said it myself when I curse. I can say it on the whole years ago. Man, I got to do that to express myself. You know, speaking so know I mean what I say. That's the rationale people use. Just let your word be a word. Speak the truth. Speak biblical truth. You don't have to add profanity to what the Bible says because God says what he says and that's it. It goes back to the first one. Don't lie but do what? Speak the truth. When you speak biblical truth, you don't have to use unwholesome language. Just speak God's truth and that sells it. For believers, we don't have to use communication with each other or out in the greater world or with our family members or with our children. When I was a school teacher, I never, I never used to to my students. I was very, I was a very firm teacher. I didn't have to just say one word of fan to my students. And at the end, I just said, "Have a seat. You're going to listen to me today because I'm the teacher. Until you get a degree and get up here, you sit down and listen to me. Just like that. And you know what they would do? Sit down." And this, yes, sir, Mr. Haywood. I can do all that without raising my voice, without using profanity. As believers, we can't listen to the world and say that that's acceptable to use violence. Again, it goes back to being like the Gentiles. We're not to be like them. The world says that's okay. But we're putting on new man that's different. So, Instead of using profanity, using foul language, spirit, corrupting talk, we do what is what? Edifying, what builds up, what gives grace. Because corrupting has a sense of being bad or, or rotten or putrid, like bad smelling fish. That's what, that's what it gives. But when you give grace, you're speaking means to benefit others rather than corrupting them through what is said. That is what it means to, to minister grace. You're saying things to edify. That's how you love your neighbor. You, you, you say what's going to benefit them. You speak words that are going to greatly benefit rather than corrupting them. And then he says another point of conduct here. And do not Grieve because that's what all these sins do. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The new man will not grieve the Holy Spirit because he is our real seal. Now, there are many ways to grieve the Holy Spirit. We can neglect holiness and grieve the Holy Spirit. <coughs> we can think in purely materialistic terms and grieve the Holy Spirit. All we think about is the acquisition of things, all we think about is money. That grieves the Holy Spirit. Remember, it's the Holy Spirit who exalts Jesus. John 15 and 26 says that. When we fail to exalt Jesus, guess what? We do the same thing. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we exalt ourselves rather than exalting Christ. We agree with the Holy Spirit. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, I think now, I think I now see the Spirit of God grieving when you are sitting down to read a novel and there's your Bible unread. You have no time for prayer. But the Spirit sees you very active about worldly things and having many hours to spare for relaxation and amusement. And then he is grieved because he sees that you love worldly things better than you love him. Ouch. That grieves the Holy Spirit. When we have time to pray, and we don't even pray. When we have time to read, read the Bible, or we don't read the Bible. That don't mean that we should never 
do recreational things. That doesn't mean we should never go outside and enjoy nature. But in those times, those idle times that we have where we so-called have nothing to do, do we take time to pray? Do we take time to read scripture? Or do we just spend our time on that phone scrolling Facebook and TikTok videos? Well, my case, scroll my Twitter feed. Instead of taking a few minutes, five minutes, ten minutes to read the word and pray about what I read. Those are ways we read the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit's grief is not petty and it is not oversensitive. Spurgeon continues, He is grieved with us mainly for our own sake. For he knows what misery sin will cost us. He reads our sorrows and our sins. He grieves over us because he sees how much chastisement we incur and how much communion we lose. So the Holy Spirit grieves us for our sake because of what we are missing out on. By not communing with God, by not praying to God, by not reading about God and his word by not having fellowship with God. The Holy Spirit knows how much we are missing. The Holy Spirit's not missing anything. He's the third person of the Trinity. He, you know, he's not missing anything. He's grieving us because we are missing out. We are bringing sorrow on ourselves when we don't go to God, when we don't trust in God, when we don't depend on God. Who are we bringing sorrow to? We're not bringing sorrow to God. We're bringing sorrow to ourselves and that is how that's why the Holy Spirit is grieved he's grieved for us it's like when you have a, a child or a friend who is just living in sin and you're like they just don't get it they don't know what they're missing out on they're missing out on the freedom that they will have in Christ they're missing out on the misery that can be taken away if they just come to Christ, you grieve for them. You've been that way before? You grieve for a person because you know the misery they're in. You know the hopelessness that they have in their life because they're without Christ and you're grieving for them. That's how the Holy Spirit grieves for us. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, He's grieved for us. And that's what Spurgeon is saying. That's what it, that's what it means. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This becomes a very powerful, persuasive argument for us as Christians to behave in a way that truly reflects the God by whom we are redeemed. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. And then he ends it by talking about forgiving God, uh, uh, forgiving people. Verses 30 through 30, 31 to 32. He gives it as a command, basically. Get rid of all bitterness. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor, clamor is brawling. He says, Let all of that bitterness and wrath and anger. And clamor and uh, slander to be put away from you along with all malice. Instead, be what? Kind to one another, tender hearted, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. The new man has control of his emotions, bitterness, wrath, and anger, and so forth. Aristotle, the great philosopher, he defined bitterness as the resentful spirit that refuses reconciliation, refuses to, to be reconciled, refuses to make things right. That's what bitterness is. The person's bitter, they don't want to make things right. So he said that all bitterness, we're not, we're not to be bitter. We're to pursue as believers, we're to pursue reconciliation. And he puts bitterness at the head of this because it can lead to the other sins that are on this list. Because bitterness comes 
from a heart that is not right before God. Let me say that again. Bitterness comes from a heart that is not right before God. It is a primary characteristic of an unregenerate person. person who is just bitter, that's the characteristic of an unregenerate person, not a new man in Christ or a new woman in Christ. So we have to let that bitterness put it away because we're new in Christ, because we're made after the image of Christ. So we have to put that away. We do that all with the Holy Spirit's help. He says, wrath. What is wrath? Wrath is outbursts of the moment, outbursts of anger. Okay? That's what wrath is. Anger out of control. Throwing stuff. Hitting stuff. Punching stuff. Turning insults at people. That's wrath. You get mad and punch a hole in the wall. Kick something. Walk out of the room and explain something like you see in the movies. Take a bat to something or stick or you know, just go and just do you know that it's so funny. They have anger anger rooms now. It's one in Gaston. It's called an anger room. You pay to go in there and just bash things. What? People actually do that. That's how to deal with that anger is by showing around. I mean, how contradictory is that? You deal with your anger by bashing things. Because the world says what? Oh, it's going to make you feel better. <laughs> what did Paul say again in the beginning of the chapter? Don't live like the Gentiles in the futility of their mind, in the stupidity of their mind. The world says if you're angry, hit something. You'll feel better. No, you won't. You'll be even more angry. And you'll be sore. And you'll cause damage to something. Even if it's a room that you pay for to go destroy things, you're still going to be angry. It's not going to solve the root issue of that. And that's the heart. But that's what the world says. If you get angry, hit something, bash something, smash something. That's what the world says. Paul says that we would put away from you. He says, wrath, which is rage, anger, brawling, which is clamor. We would put that away. We're not to 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 be. Like combative with each other. And slander, not talking down to people and uh, assassinating each other's character, you know, speaking ill of other believers, gossiping about them. Excuse me, he said, with all malice. Malice is hurt with intent. You're hurting someone with the intent of hurting them. You, you, you take pleasure in, in hurting someone. But we're not to do that with one another. What does he say instead that no man should do? He says, be what? Kind. Tender heart. Forgive one another. The new man seeks to show the same kindness, tender heartedness, and forgiveness to others that God has shown to us. If we treat others as God treats us, we prepare everything that Paul commands us to do in this chapter. He says we do this just as God and Christ has forgave us. So our forgiveness to others is patterned out of forgiveness of Jesus toward us. When we think about the amazing forgiveness that Christ, with which Christ has given us, it is a shame for us to withhold forgiveness from those who have wronged us. When we think about how much we've been forgiven, we should forgive people. That doesn't mean that'll take away the hurt that they cause, but that's not the issue. The issue is not how much hurt they cause us. Look at what our sins cost Christ. 
Which offense is greater? What someone did to us or what we did in sending Christ to the cross? Remember, it was our sins. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. We committed the greater offense against God. More so than someone has done against us. Now that doesn't mean that we should never be offended. That's not what that means. But we look at these offenses in light of the offense that we cause No, nothing that anyone has ever done to us is greater than Christ and what our sins cost. Our sins were so bad that some, someone had to be sacrificed on a cross in order for them to be forgiven. That's how bad our sins were. That someone had to go to a cross be tortured, be beaten until his back was ripped open and hung up by nails and forsaken by God in order for us to receive forgiveness. In order for us to be saved. There's no offense that anyone has done to us that's worse than that. Yes, it does hurt when people hurt us. Yes, it does hurt. It should hurt. But we don't make that hurt so bad that we just can't find it in our hearts to forgive them. That sounds righteous and pious, but it's evil. Because what did Paul say? Forgiving one another, just as God in Christ did what? Forgave you and me. We think about what Christ did for us of forgiving us. And we tell that person, I forgive you. <clears throat> I don't like what you did. I will never be good with it. But I forgive you. Because if not, guess what it's going to lead to? Bitterness. It's going to lead to bitterness. That's what it's going to lead to. We forgive because what? We've been forgiven. We've been forgiven greater. <laughs> That's the characteristic of the new man. And that is how we ought to be with each other's beliefs. That is how we ought to be with people in the world. Charles Spurgeon said this, and I'm going to say this, and we're going to close in prayer. Paul, uh, Charles Spurgeon says, If anyone here who is a Christian finds a difficulty in forgiveness, I'm going to give him three words which will help him wonderfully. I will put them into the good man's mouth. I gave them to you just now. I pray for you to get the sweetness of them. Here they are again. These are three words. For Christ's sake. Can I even give a defender on that ground? For Christ's sake. You forgive someone for Christ's sake. Why? Because he forgave you. If any other reason to forgive, that is the supreme reason. For Christ's sake. Not for your sake. You're nothing. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I'm not a savior. I'm not anybody's savior. I'm not anybody's redeemer. I'm not anybody's Lord. I'm not anybody's God. But we do have a redeemer. We do have a savior. We do have a Lord. We have a God. And his name is Jesus. And we forgive, if anything, for his sake. Let us pray. Lord, it's so wonderful that as new men and new women in Christ, you, you showed us how we ought to live. And Lord, we don't always do that perfectly. Forgive us, Lord, for the times where we where we don't live this way, where we don't put away lying and falsehood, where we don't speak the truth, 
with our neighbors, where we are angry and sin, where we do steal in different ways, where we do use corrupt language, where we do grieve the Holy Spirit, where we don't put away bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, and Lord, where we're not kind to one another. Lord, we've all failed in those ways. Lord, we ask you to help us as a church family, help us as individual believers to live this way, to struggle to live this way, to pray to live this way. Because, Lord, in doing so, we all will bring glory to your name. And Lord, I pray for unbelievers. They are still yet in their sins. They're still yet in the futility of their minds. They're still early for you, Lord. They won't be able to live like this, Lord, long they're not in you, Lord. I, I pray that you may save them from their sins. Save them so that they may see the glory in living for Christ, the glory of living for God, the glory of having their sins forgiven, of being able to freely forgive people with their free conscience because their sins have been forgiven. Lord, command what you will and will us to do what you command. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. 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 <laughs> that was a good evening.